Welcome to Pharma Launch Secrets, a podcast by Evermed. We host direct, actionable conversations with world-leading pharma launch experts that will help you launch your next product or indication successfully. Now, here's your host, Bozidar Jovicevic. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Farmer Launch Secrets. Uh, today I'm joined by AJ Triano, Executive Vice President of Customer Experience Practice at Sineos. AJ has over 17 years of experience in healthcare uh, technology communications and a track record of delivering innovative technology pilots in healthcare. He has worked within global healthcare agency networks alongside big tech and in small agile startups. He's motivated by a commitment to improving the way healthcare is researched, communicated, and delivered. And I'm really happy to have you here today as a guest, AJ. Welcome. Yeah, nice to see you. So I'm even more interested in the conversation today and the topic, given that I just picked up a book on a digital experience. It's called Digital Experience Company at the bookshelf of the LaGuardia Airport last weekend when I was traveling to a medical conference. So I'm very deep into this topic and excited to talk about it. So to start with, and here it is, by the way, it's in my desk. There you go. Digital experience company from someone who has been running this for 15 years. So really cool in other industries. So let's start with definition. So we hear the term CX much more often in the pharma industry lately. Some companies have actually built that as a function. It was in the news that Novartis has built it as, as a function. There are terms like customer engagement function uh, being built. So how would you define CX? Yeah, it's a great question. And there are a lot of, it's a loaded term. I think people bring their understanding of it based on the ability that their careers afforded them to be exposed to it. And I often find that the definition gets a little defensive. People people get a little up at uh, territorial maybe uh, when you start talking about it. Um, so I think before I give the answer, I think the more important uh, caveat is to say that your experiences as an individual is yours, right? And it doesn't make the your understanding or experience to date right or wrong, but there is a bigger umbrella of customer experience. And it's been around a really long time compared to some of the newer technologies like, you know, this isn't chat GPT just coming out, you know, this year. So customer experience as a discipline, it is pretty simply the totality of the experience that a customer has with a brand. I think what's interesting about that definition is that people assume that means a direct interaction with the brand. So I see an ad or I you know, use the product or I call customer service. What is really important to understand is that the customer experience actually begins really far before that and sometimes indirectly uh, because it gets started by expectations set by other people who've used your brand, by other brands. And it continues after a direct interaction as you continue to think about it and reflect on it. So, you know, the importance of CX and what, what it is, it's okay, it's the whole experience of a customer of the brand, but well before and well after, right? There's a lot of room to look at how you can shape that before and after. Right. And one follow-on question that's what that means for pharma is CX applied both on the patient side and the HCP side or mostly on the HCP side? How do organizations think about that? Yeah, uh, well, that's a nuanced question. How do they think about it or what should they be thinking about? <laughs> yes, I'll cover both because there's always a gap between the two. <laughs> well, 100% and an opportunity. The, the, the answer is that the, it's, it's anybody who you would consider to be a customer, right? And that includes payers, by the way, managed markets too. 
But most importantly, it's actually the front end employees of the company itself. That's your first customer, right? Because they represent your brand and their happiness and satisfaction directly impacts then how they represent that brand externally. So the it would be patients and HCPs. It would be caregivers. It would be managed markets. So anybody who would consume some information, whether it's based on a need or based on accidental exposure to your brand. Great. And then CX now as a function. Then the question is, people understand when you say marketing function, they know what it means. Sales function, they know what it means. Market access, pricing, manufacturing. The question is, is CX a function? And where does it sit within the organization? Does it sit with, with mostly marketing and sales or patient support services? What's the most natural place to sit and how should people be, be thinking about, about it? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's one, honestly, that our industry is wrestling with a lot. In my role, I get to see the inside machinery of, of a whole host of clients from big pharma down to first commercializations and SMIDs in between. And there are clusters of models that start to show up with how CX is handled. But there is also a nuance to that question. Um, the other part of that question is who's responsible, right, versus how is it structured or function. I'll start there first, because like, like many uh, companies that produce widgets, you know, they talk about quality and that everybody in the employee is directly accountable for the quality of the product. Well, the same is true for customer experience. There's no one single owner or domain that is singularly responsible or accountable for the customer experience. But what you end up having, because everybody is, right? But what you end up having is a need for a steward or a shepherd. And that's why you see the, the functional role of a CX strategist or a chief customer experience officer, somebody who is, who is being measured and held accountable for coordinating the whole system, right, together for the benefit of a, of a more uniform, a more consistent, and hopefully a more tailored experience to the individual customer. So if that's the responsibility, you know, you've got someone their, their roles or their titles might change. It might be, you know, you might be a, a customer experience person or it might be called something else. But you've got somebody who's responsible for shepherding. And we see companies taking different models to that. Sometimes that is a central sort of center of excellence role that then is like in the middle coordinating with all the different disciplines uh, and, and helping to actually make sure the strategy is well aligned and then also that it's being delivered and executed together. Sometimes it's more of like an internal consultancy who's sort of providing guidance, but then executions up to other parties tends to not work so well. But the one thing that is common, speaking broadly across all customers, is that the functional discipline does play that stewardship role sitting in partnership with marketing, with product development, with customer service, with sales, and all together making the experience better and having some degree of executive leadership accountability. I totally understand. I mean, to me, the first reaction would be if I would be, huh, be responsible to set up a product team for the product launch, to have a CX person, no matter how it reports in the organization, but to have it part of the launch team. Right? So it's sitting with, with marketing, it's sitting with sales leaders, sitting with medical affairs, uh, market access pricing, and really trying to kind of see what's the totality of that of that experience with the external world and internally. Now, let's say we there is a brand director listening to this episode, right? And they are now launching a product. And I know you're, you know, 
being an EVP at Seniors, you you're involved in number of RFPs or clients and helping them in launches. So how should a brand director preparing a launch even think about uh, CX? How do you communicate the value to them? It's such a great question. And I think it may be difficult sometimes for people in that position to recognize the value because often they're put into a context where they're given a very short amount of time to launch or a certain amount of budget. And, and there is an easy temptation to fall into the need to just sort of deliver on the sort of block and tackle of a typical launch where the industry says, well, we know we need a website. No, we know we need CRM or we need, you know, there are, we've got to have a core sales aid. You know, there are things we need to do. And all of that stuff is right and true. But there is an important role of customer experience in that. And it's not just doing market research, right? It's not just, you know, getting the voice of the customer is crucial. Getting it early is super important. But we have a tendency to approach market research where we look for the most common answer and sort of let the outliers become data points that we ignore when doing that kind of research. And when you think about the experience of the customer and you think about those outliers, oftentimes those are the things where friction happens or where there's opportunity to make the experience better, not just for that that one-off individual, but for everyone. So it's important to, to not sort of just dismiss CX as, oh, I'm doing my market research, my typical market research, or I've got my typical tactical planning. I want to kind of come back to your question for a second, though, about from the marketer's point of view. And I want to flip the question because I think the best place to start is actually to look at the more important angle of that, which is what are the expectations a customer has of a brand experience at launch? That's really what a pharma marketer needs to answer. And the reason for that is super important because customers, we all customers, you know, we, including um, our clients, including HCPs, there's a big tendency to think HCPs are somehow like scientific only minded people with no emotions and don't behave like any other kind of consumer. They're just like us, right? But if we understand the expectations customers have of a good brand experience, full stop today, that is a significant part of what you've got to do as a brand, no matter what, whether you're launching a pair of shoes or you're launching an injectable diabetes product, right? And that's because as consumers, whether the pharma marketer likes it or not, as consumers, our expectations for what a great brand experience looks like is being set every single day by every other brand we interact with. And many of the, our experiences have been set at a pretty high bar for what good brand interaction looks like by companies like Amazon and Apple and Disney. And that has a real implication. And, and I've been in some really interesting conversations with clients where they, they can be a little dismissive about that. So, yeah, but I'm launching. That's not the case for, for, I'm talking about pharma, right? This is about healthcare. Yeah, okay, but you know, you're going to bring that same expectation to every brand. You're going to expect certain things to be on your terms because you get that everywhere else. You're going to expect to have certain levels of control. And you're going to expect things to be super easy. And when you need support, you're going to be able to get it, right? And if you don't hit that mark, it kind of, it, it kind of leaves everyone lacking. And it certainly leaves the door open for a competitive brand to step in and, and sort of steal your thunder. So understanding that customer expectations of good brand experiences are shaped inside and outside the industry, where the pandemic certainly strengthened that even more and powered consumers even more. There are plenty of data points from a variety of sources, actually, that we've been curating uh, in the last few years that consistently point to two big things. Customers expect every brand to be more like Amazon. And yet when it comes to healthcare, 
customers expect healthcare brands to meet and exceed their expectations, and they're unforgiving if you don't. It's like, if I recall, it's like 86%, I think, or something like that, of consumers want healthcare brands to be meeting or exceeding. But then they give a hall pass to retailers, like really low 30s and 40% expectations. Like, well, if they don't meet, but retailers are setting the bar. So if I'm launching a brand and I keep my blinders on and all I think about is my, mo- my molecules relative advantage, like it's better efficacy, it's better safety, or I've got a better cost profile, and that's all I'm worried about. And I worry about only the mechanics. I'm missing the fact that customers are coming to my brand expecting a service or a value that goes beyond that molecule and that they're placing increasingly equal or more value on that experience than the product itself. So now put yourself in a launch position and you say, how is my product differentiated? Okay, maybe you have a better profile safety and efficacy wise. Maybe you have better pricing. Great, but customers expect you to nail that without any complexity and quickly. That that is the battleground we used to fight, and that was the end of it. Now that's cost of entry. And now customers want you to understand what their experience is with the disease and the role the brand plays in that experience and how that experience changes across their journey and how that changes your value as a brand. So instead of I've got my key messages. I'm going to shove them all at you all the time on all channels, you know, the multi-channel way. Instead, it's recognizing, hey, in this moment, the only part of me as a brand you need is this tiny little bit. And it may not be a key message. It may actually be a service that says, I'm going to make that easier. I'm going to reduce the friction so that you can keep moving forward faster. And then I'm seen as value. So understanding that is really crucial as a brand marketer. And if you do that, Customers place greater value on the experience and the brand itself. They are willing to pay more for brands that have great experiences, not just based on the the competitive attributes of the molecule. When you put all that together and you put yourself in a competitive landscape, now you can start to be super creative with, with what it means to be differentiated, right? You could be second or third to market. Yeah, arguably, you could have a, a slide that you know, on a CBA shows you've got, you know, 2% greater efficacy or, you know, whatever that is. Does that really matter at the end of the day? Well, in that case, what matters is how easy was it for me to get that product filled at the pharmacy? Oh, it's specialty pharma. Oh, well, how easy was it for me to deal with three phone calls from the pharmacy just to get the product shipped to me? And then I receive it. Or does it require me to do something at home? Like do I have to inject myself or do I have to do a tricky titration schedule? Or do I have to wait two months to get to full clinical efficacy of the product? What can you as a brand do in all of those moments to make it easier and to be with them just in time in that moment to tell them just what they need to know to keep them moving? If you don't tackle that and you just sit back and say, yeah, well, I've got 2% greater efficacy, you're going to lose to a competitor if they come in and recognize that they can outmode you on the experience portion by reducing the complexity or adding value-added services. So long-winded way um, to get around to the brand marketer's perspective, you got to start by understanding what is it that a, the, the individual person you're trying to reach, who are they and what do they need of you by stage, stage of that journey and pick the parts of your brand that are relevant to show up and not just rely on the old school tactic, you know, cost of entry things to, to get in market, the block and tackle. No, that's great. I think you hit on a, a, a lot of important points, and I like to you give examples as we go. 
So a few comments. It's interesting, you, there was a research recently that said the doctors actually expect, exactly as you said, there was the word expect the, what they are used to with Amazon, Netflix, Apple, and others day to day. And it's interesting that, you know, we are soon launching uh, this, you know, Netflix-like hub for medical society. Now, among medical society, I cannot reveal which one will be public next week, but Medical societies that don't usually they have a lot of content. They have massive trust, the highest trust, right? And then, but it, it's no, no one expects great user experience, and everyone is frustrated and quietly confused and spending time and being overwhelmed and giving up after two or three clicks, right? And then once one society decides to do that and offers it, it becomes public. You know, as you know, as Jeff Bezos said, customers are always uh, beautifully slightly dissatisfied and then everyone becomes <laughs> a little slightly dissatisfied and he saw it as an opportunity to build even better and better and better like amazon is so good at product returns at customer service says easy easy find what you want so they're so good in every other st step of the way i'm thinking the moment that what uh, the game is changed by one player it becomes actually more difficult for others it sets the bar differently even with the healthcare within the healthcare industry right or something that the other one i think just to comment you mentioned like the word easy several times, like that whole experience, like, you know, those two products, you know, same efficacy and safety, but my experience, like how easy, how fast, the prioritization, especially in pharmacy, this and that. I was reading recently that, that uh, customers nowadays are actually placing more value in something that saves them time versus being free for products that have a freemium model. So it's very interesting, like messaging that is like, saves you time faster, easier, they place more value than free. It's just because I think we're busy, overwhelmed, we live, live, live busy lives. So that was, that was very interesting. There's an important part to that, though, Bazi, in that the, as an industry, we sort of place greater value on needing to say something, right? Because we're marketers, right? That's what, how do you, what do you do as a marketer? Well, you deliver a message, you deliver content. But a marketer's role actually is, is really in the pole position of coordinating the entire customer experience, shaping it, packaging it making it consumable and making it sure it's one voice, even if, you know, it's being delivered by the sales team or fielded in the call center where, you know, from an organizational standpoint, it's easy to argue, well, that's not my turf. I don't have, you know, first string authority there. And, but yet as a marketer, you're the one doing all the packaging of the brand experience. So what's interesting about the desire we have to always be saying something is that some of the most impactful brand experiences are actually the ones that are completely forgotten. And we, we try to spend some time looking at, at the experience a, a customer would have the brand. And we really try to say, is this a moment that they need to remember? Or do we need, is success actually measured by not saying anything and removing the friction that's in their way so that, so that, that it's kind of not noticeable, that it's so easy that it's not noticeable? And if you think about it, like yourself, like, you know, you get in your car and you drive somewhere. Do you remember how you got there? Do you remember the drive? No, you kind of, you went on autopilot, right? Unless something happened, like oh, a car swerved in your lane. Okay, you remember that. But when you think back, it's like, it's kind of scary. You don't remember <laughs> driving to get to your destination. It's because it's forgettable by design. Our brains aren't primed to remember that. We do remember something significant and significant could be good or it could be bad. So you put that in the context of a brand. And if I needed to be super easy for you to get a product, it, you know, at home to take, and it's so simple because I've 
sorted out a you know a white glove service. I've got a hub service lined up. I make sure that we've got people here to help you every step of the way, removing the friction. Great. If I don't have that, and suddenly there's a lot of work that you have to do, now you remember it and you remember it negatively. So marketing isn't just about what you say and putting it out there. It's about when and where you can actually not say anything at all and instead remove barriers so that it's seamless and forgettable. Now, it just reminded me of the old song, you say the best when you say nothing at all. <laughs> there you go. Uh, there's a lot of people joking about. So how do you start this? Let's say there's, there, there's a pharma team in front of you and they're saying, we totally get it. We understand why this is important. And how do we start? Do you start, do you have a framework where you look at all the channels? Let's say we're talking about the HTTPs, just to kind of make it like focused on, on one. Sure segment do you start by mapping out those pain points and points of like the light points for each of the channels and then like see how to improve and how to coordinate and harmonize or what's the kind of the framework or the approach high level yeah that's it and and the good news is is that if we look at the traditional mechanics of marketing a lot of the steps are are already going to start being in place right you're going to have some segmentation data typically that tells you something uh, in a in a quantifiable way about who and how to group your audience. You can look at those groupings and then you can start to apply some greater qualifying understanding to them, whether it's it's mindset related, you know, and motivational style stuff, or whether it's just getting an understanding from voice of customer and basic market research, you know, what what drives them. And you can start to figure out how to communicate to them. What's really important though is to start to, to quickly get to grips with the who and define that by literally who and where they are target-wise and how do you group them into like individuals and then start working with the groups of like individuals. Whether you want to do full-on personas or you want to stick to more like segmentation approach, it's, you know, it's just degrees of understanding about the customer. But at minimum, you've got to get to like-minded groups and then plot those groups and the, the, the typical experience of the group, right? And, you know, and that's why we do like personas because you can use one you know, one representation for the group. So you've got a persona and you move through, okay, you know, that they're aware uh, for an HCP, they're aware because they hear about the trial, right? And then they learn about, you know, that, that you're pre-launch and you're about to launch an FDA date, and then you become available. You've got to understand what motivates them and are they going to be early adopters or are they not? Um, because that matters in how you choose to create content to motivate them. An early adopter, you really don't have to say much, right? <laughs> and you can look at the data for that, right? We can go into the segmentation data and we can look at prescribing behavior. Do they typically prescribe new products early and often? And because if so, you don't really have to spend a whole lot of money targeting them. You know, you just they just they're probably going to be more likely to move just because you're available, right? But the the later folks, you know, after launch through, you know, halfway, you know, nine months to 18 months post-launch. Those are a little bit of the watch and waiters. They've got resistance. They want to understand more. They want to see their colleagues, their peers, their trusted uh, KOLs that they look to, to do it first and show them it's okay. And for them, you need to speak to them differently. You need to show up differently. You know, the same aspirational messaging isn't really going to motivate them. You might need to speak more to the practical realities of reducing risk in their day-to-day -day practice because there's a reason they're holding back, that they're not doing it right away. If you can figure out what that reason is, then you can tailor your messaging to that reason and speak a little bit more on their terms. Like you should do this because it gets these benefits or it, it protects the patient versus, hey, we're launched. You should do it because you can. 
And that changes how your key messages are expressed in content. And it changes how they manifest in CTAs that you use in marketing, right? It might even change which visuals you use. And if you understand that about the persona, and then you look at their typical journey with the disease and the brand, you can start to figure out when is the right time to say which key messages and iterations of them to them through your marketing stack, right? So if that's sort of the bigger idea behind it, then the practical steps become look at your data, start with segmentation, figure out the who, how they group, then try to you know work with the, the persona of each who to understand what are their pain points, what are their perspectives, and then what are their journeys. And in the key moments that matter the most, not every moment, but in the ones that matter the most to them and to you as a brand in that sort of Venn diagram overlap, figure out what you can say to help reduce friction and move them along and keep them motivated and figure out what you can do to add value and service. Those become your, your, your major touch points and your tactics, and it drives your content development and your creative execution of your, your concepts and campaigns in market. And that's how you start to gear towards the, the promise of omnichannel or one-to-one tailored experiences for each customer type, but at scale, right? Yeah, and it's one of using also the word friction, and, and thank you for sharing like the overall thinking framework how to even like start strategically to and then turn that like strategy into into step by step approach. So I was thinking I was reading something about habits and systems recently, and they said how we as human beings have this tendency when we want to solve a problem, we have a tendency to add things. Whereas the first step is it better to subtract. And they give examples, weight loss. So like, oh, you know, I want to lose weight. So now I'm going to go to the gym like seven times a week. And now I'm going to do this. And now I'm going to hire a coach. It's like the first thing is to make portions smaller, <laughs> to reduce something, to subtract something, right? Or to reduce uh, soda. <laughs> so And that's actually usually like easier to think about rather than getting overwhelmed with 17 things. that. And I think that as you go to this experience, especially I think in healthcare, because there is so much friction, in the system and the design of the system often it's really like removing those obstacles along the way to pave the way for kind of easier user experience more like subtracting subtracting that's right simplifying yeah yeah that's right simplifying and there's actually a very important assumption behind that that i would encourage any brand marketer at launch to really look at and we're seeing this inflection point in the industry right now where the idea of do I understand enough about who I'm trying to reach? Like, do I have enough data? Do I have enough market research? Do I, do, do I know enough to do something? There is a pivot right now between the idea of, of, of recognizing what is needed to drive a true omni-channel experience, which is underpinned by data and customer experience principles. True omni-channel execution is those two things. So we've seen the industry rush in the last five you know, ten, five to 10 years to the idea of omni-channel. And then about five years ago, we started seeing some early leads on doing next best action work and pilots. And then comes COVID. And now marketers are forced to embrace the MarTech stack because they can't be in front of their HCPs, right? And if that's the case, then it's, and because of context, they're having to like, just take their existing campaigns in COVID, chop them up into modules, so to speak, and shove them into MarTech and execute. The, the, the upshot is that we're finally using these very expensive technologies that clients have been paying for for a very long time for their full intent, which is great. The, the opportunity to get trapped is to bring along to that omni-channel execution intention 
the expectations of what it means to know enough about your customer from multi-channel world. And what I mean by that is if you think about the level of research we would do in a multi-channel environment, it, it's, well, what are the channels? Where, you know, how do I know which channel is appropriate to this particular audience? But then it comes down to saying consistently the same things in all those channels to that audience, right? Whereas customer experience and the promise of omni-channel means you can be more explicit to the individual at scale. And in that respect, just what we know enough from an omni-channel market research, it's typical market research, channel preference. That doesn't get you what you need to know to excel an omni-channel because that level of research, the traditional classic market research, looks at the general audience. It generalizes everybody to the top line takeaways and it gets rid of the one-offs and the more interesting opportunities to tailor. It doesn't understand in the key moments that matter the most what's happening for each of those customer types because it stays general. And as a result, it doesn't under allow you to know what type of content is right to serve to which person or person type at what time using your omnichannel stack. So um, there's a little bit of paternalism still built into our industry where, you know, we hear, and we're all victim to it. We all do it. If I'm pressed by time or pressed by budget, it's really easy to say, you know what? I did my basic market research. I know enough. Or the end of one conversation trap. Well, I saw my sales lead in the hallway and he told me about how his regional market lead had a good conversation with a doctor who said their patient had. That's a lot of degrees of separation. And those are great directional cues. They're very important to lean into and look at, but they don't actually serve as the voice of the customer that would help you know what is the value proposition of your brand for each of those customer types in those two or three major key moments that matter the most so that you can show up and actually move the needle. It, it, without that, you're forced to stay at this sort of higher altitude, one size fits all, no matter how much you modularize your content. That is, I think, a, a key lesson I've, in the last two years that I would, I would offer to anybody that's about to launch a brand right now is don't fall into that trap of paternalism thinking you know enough from basic market research. There's always a way to get a little bit of voice at customer, even if it's fast and furious and on the cheap, in order to inform a little bit of more nuanced direction for launch. And you can always iterate on that once you do launch to progressively build out a more tailored experience because you don't have to have the whole thing ticked and tied and perfect at launch, right? It is iterative. Yeah. And it's an overwhelming, as you said, you know, I posted in my LinkedIn last week that someone once told me that whenever, whatever you think will take two years in healthcare, it, take five, it will take five. And then I made a point that actually for the adoption of content on demand, on the channel, personalization, I think what will take five years, that took two because of the COVID kind of accelerated everything and you mentioned also content and my mind the content is, is kind of a you know essential piece of everything we're discussing the future and omni-channel and the content has this beauty i was discussing with someone else that you know as someone is consuming your content you get to see what works what doesn't so it creates this flywheel with content intelligence informs what's the next piece of content and not just what people are interested in watching but also what content converts to the next best action or high value action the challenge that I, that, that I see for pharma, number one, when you mentioned the word content, most people think of visual aids and or webinar. So they don't think like on-demand, short-form content, this and that. Number one. Number two, uh, most of pharma teams feel overwhelmed like thinking about the content strategy. Where do I start? How do I deal immediately? Like objections like MLR, cost, this and that come into play. So 
what do you see now in the market, without mentioning names, of course, with you know companies that are doing this well, omnichannel content, CX, like any of these? Because I know there are not too many examples. What are they doing differently than others who are not succeeding or still in that like struggle and overwhelm phase? Yeah, so you, I think you nailed it with MLR. Success is going to be, it's going to be very crucial as a marketer to embrace your, your MLR partners from a medical and legal perspective, especially bring them in early, give them concept reviews of the intention behind the campaign and how you want to create this content and where you want to use it, whether it's on a great platform like yours or whether it's in an omnichannel execution, whether it's through the field team, but highly tailored to the audience where the rep has more control, like whatever that is. They need to get a concept under understanding first and foremost, and you need to hear, you know, really listen to what their barriers are and work with your agency partners to help go uh, find ways to create comfort around that, which oftentimes is as simple as a little bit of a lunch and learn. And we, we do that kind of stuff regularly to help our, our client colleagues get comfortable with and find, find the path forward. The, the things the the next thing that I've seen pretty consistently for those who found success is that they they look at their key message architectures and they rec they build out basic key message message architecture in general because you know as a brand you know you want to say certain things and then revisit that before you consider it complete from the perspective of the customer for each of the different so let's say you've got a maybe it's a cardiologist versus a neurologist for example. And maybe let's throw a third in there, a PCP. Your key message architecture, you're not going to say every one of those messages to all three of those audiences because they have different perspectives of the patient, maybe even see them at different times in the journey. And so what they need to hear from you is going to be different. So you, th there are certainly, you know, 50 to 70, maybe 80% of those key messages are universal across all your audiences. But some of them may be specific only to one of those, those audience targets. When you do your homework and figure out then what additional experiences they have in their journey with the brand and dealing with their patients, it's not uncommon to find that there's maybe one extra key message or two for, for each of those audiences that is really crucial for them. And if you do that work, then you can take back to regulatory your basic key message architecture that's universal, appended by what's going to only be said to each of the audience types, specific audience types, and you get approval on that first. Once you have that in place, it makes it so much easier to then come back to regulatory and say, here's our cardiologist content versus our neurologist content. And you can see how it maps to the key messages you've approved so that they can follow you along the iterative development process. Now, what usually happens is you get swirl after that. Some regulatory teams are, are not really okay with receiving modular content. It's like, great, I've got this key message for a card versus a, neuro, a neuro and I see I approve that. I see you turn that into content, but now you're telling me you want to have an A, B, and C version of that content for that. You know, th that can be overwhelming. And so that's where it's important to work with your regulatory partners early to understand what is their, their understanding of how mar marketing automation works and how you could use different iterations at different times. And then look at how is, how is your system set up? Most everybody uses Viva. So how can you work within Viva to submit manuscripts that clearly identify that these are the alternate versions of content by audience? And in some cases, the alternate version of content isn't AB. It's, it's here's the same content we want to say. And in this case, it's web content. In this case, it's a video asset that's saying the same thing, right? 
that has to have its own review. So really, it's the success we've seen have been starting with that that approach to key messages, bringing your regulatory partners along early and often, and figuring out what they need beforehand to submit these things for review, so that you're not having that conversation when you're trying to actually go live. Great. No, thanks. And I uh, want to ask you one more question before we conclude with more questions about you. So the audience gets to know you better, have five or six rapid fire questions. But before that, and I know this is going to be a really big question, I probably will need another episode just on it because you have background in media as well. On a very high level, with everything that we discussed today, what is the role of a media? Is it going to media going to be used more or less? Is it going to work with all these channels kind of to help continue that experience? So what is the role of media? And me, when you say media, we often I mean, like pay that or please clarify if I'm getting it, getting it wrong. Yeah, that's a great question. It, it actually is a part of a slightly larger question of what's the role of non-personal promotion versus personal, because there's, there's sometimes is an existential crisis um, that people can feel about that. The reality is, is that media and other non-personal promotion tactics are going to increasingly become very important to use to prepare your your audience for the more expensive channels like your Salesforce. And because today we have very good targeting capabilities, we can actually create a one-to-one experience through things like programmatic media buying so that you get cost-efficient ways to reach very explicitly targeted audiences in a one-to-one way that actually progresses people along the marketing funnel or along an omni-channel journal journey rather. So media is going to, in that broad sense, continue to play a very, very important role of a coordinated component, not just a target and blast, but we're progressing people through. You can split media into two functions then, and I'm being very high high in general. I'm sure you know my media expert colleagues would say there's a lot more to it than this, but at the highest level, the way I look at it is there's media for the purpose of general awareness building, at which point you get, you know, it's not one-to-one target. That's crucial. You got to build that foundational on the halo. But then you need to, you need to really understand how you can use media to reach your audience in a just-in-time way. Because we remember the things, you know, that old adage, three, four times, you got to see something before you remember it. it comes sort of the marketer's rule book. So, you, you know, you got to impressions and all that stuff. Well, set your, you know, prep them with that, but then really understand when is the moment that's most important to get that message back in front of them, because maybe they're in front of the patient, right? Just in time. And that's where some of the new advancements with the ability to use targeted uh, media in a one-to-one way, whether that's programmatic, EHR, what have you, um, that's really crucial. So I think looking at media, not just as broad or as targeted and just in time is what we need to really look at. Now, the caveat of course, is going to be um, the, the need for you to have your own first-party data that you have gotten consent for. And that's what in the United States, especially brands are starting to wrestle with. Global companies do the little cookie tray and all that great fun stuff. But we've seen, continue to see a lot of brands who are caught sideways because they're now needing to do fast turn promotions, but no longer have the, the ability to reach people or permission to because they don't they don't have primary data. So the success for all of that begs a different question, which is what is your strategy to get consent and secure your own first party database? Yeah, it would be impossible to do 
right marketing in right time, just in time, everything you said without first party data and and then without the content that collects the data and the content consumption among other. Yeah. And use that data to coordinate your field and your media together too, so that they're complementary. That, that's crucial. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I have four or five uh, questions for the very end. So listeners get to know AJ a little bit better. So first of all, what do you believe will be the industry buzzword of 2023? Well, I don't like it, but it's it's going to be AI and chat GPT. I think that's going to dominate our airwaves, and I'll leave that there. Clearly, I have an opinion. <laughs> What's the best book that you've read over the past year or so? Honestly, this I'm not going to be embarrassed by this, but you'll laugh. I have a I have a kindergartner, and the best book I have read in the last year has been a revisit of some Dr. Seuss books because I'm getting to experience it through his eyes, which has made it really, really fun. God, I can imagine. And then what's your kind of go-to music genre or song when you need to feel a little bit more inspired? You know, I, it's funny. Music is a soundtrack I use to get work done and I, I do visit it. But if I need inspiration, I actually go to, I actually go to an artist slash author. Uh, his name's Brian Andreas. Uh, he, he has a couple of websites now. One of them is called Story People, which is how I found him. Uh, and I found his print, a print of these little whimsical people and these great little poems uh, or short stories he writes about them. And I have found that I can reread those books or look at those pieces of art and it change that what I get out of it changes by every time based on what's going on in my life. And so it's been a fun place to go to, to just sort of find an inspiration or resilience, renew my resilience for the world right now. Definitely checking it out. I haven't heard of it. And then who in the world of pharma if you want to ask and answer this question, would you most uh, like to take for lunch? Honestly, I would love to. I would like to do a couple of lunches, um, but it's the same role. I would like to to really sit with the heads of regulatory and really understand the world through their eyes, because they are key, they are chief partners for us, and they. I need to know what they need. You know, how can I help them in their experience so that we can all do this together? Wonderful. We just had recently an episode from uh, someone who worked with uh, who works with FDA a lot. And then, what one sentence advice would you give anyone just starting in pharma commercialization? I would say make your brand worth it to the customer, and figure out how the value of your brand shifts moment to moment that affects the motivation of that customer and their willingness to stick with you. Got it. Clear. And the last question is: Where can people find you online? Uh, LinkedIn, best place to find me, aj.triano, uh, and uh, the LinkedIn URL structure. All right. Well, it was a pleasure to have you here. There are a few moments when I thought, you know, we can probably have a whole episode just on this topic and go a little bit deeper. So we may do that in the, in the past. We had that situation in the past in the podcast and a couple of appearances. So thank you so much. Sure, it'd be really a valuable episode for anyone thinking about launches and CX. It's great having you here, and we'll stay after we hit stop for a minute or so. So everything works on a technical side as well. Thank you. Thanks, Baz. It's been fun. This podcast was brought to you by Evermed. Evermed offers pharma companies the fastest path to having their own Netflix-like on-demand video engagement hubs for doctors or patients. Make sure to search for Pharma Launch Secrets in Apple Podcasts or Spotify and click on the follow icon so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Evermed, thanks for listening.